Turning our attentions to the book of Romans. And today we're specifically looking at two sections um, in um, chapter 2, verses 25 and 29, and then another section we're looking at chapter uh, 3, verses 1 through 8. So that's going to be how we're going to break this up this morning and uh, pray that the Lord will bless us. So let me pray that. Now, Heavenly Father, as we begin to open up your word and we even read your word, we pray that the only voice we'll hear is yours, Jesus. We pray that because of our desire to be with you, our desire to hear from you, our desire to know you even better, then Lord, we pray that then because of that we will uh, hear you and know you more deeply and clearly and love you uh, more dearly than we've ever done before. We pray that that's our goal in our life as we are reminded of the gospel, as we are reminded of your word to us, that these are words, as you have told your servant Moses, these are the words of life. And so, Lord, we pray that as we hear them and as we read them and as we handle them, Lord, we hand them, handle them as such, your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles, or there's Bibles in the front of the seat in front of you now. Uh, and what we're going to, I'm going to read is, uh, just because it's been a, several weeks, just read verse 12 of chapter 2 to the end of, uh, to verse 8 of chapter 3. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed by the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outwardly, outward or physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. <clears throat> what then, excuse me, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does this, their faith, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Paul is writing to this church in Rome. As we have been going through this, uh, we realize that Paul is writing both to Jews and Gentiles who make up the church. Uh, he has... Uh, uh, addressed uh, humanity as a whole, generally in the very f uh, verses, first verses in chapter 1, verses 18, till the end of the chapter, that whole litany of, of uh, sins. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about uh, the wrath of God. And as he says in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. And what I said at that time was really, I believe that that means that we're going back uh, to the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden. Because he says there, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give life. But nobody does that. But for those who are self-seeking and but do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's a given. But for those who are so, uh, but, but there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek. So he's going back to this and saying, in the garden, there was a covenant of works, and he says, don't eat, but obey. Anything else you can, but leave this tree alone. And they failed. And so now all of humanity is clumped in all together as covenant breakers. We're all covenant breakers because we have all broken the covenant that God made with our original parent, Adam. And so this is where he goes off now and starts talking to Jews specifically, as we can notice in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law. Well, Gentiles don't have the law. 
So they always are without the law. And so he says, For those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, meaning that the law makes a difference. But it doesn't make a difference if you have it. Because he says, as he goes on to say in verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So, in Adam and Eve, and until the law came, God wrote his law, his moral code on their hearts. So no one's without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. Everybody has a conscience. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong that changes from one place to another. As we know every day of our life, it's all relative and situational ethics, right? We can do something wrong, and it's okay when we do it. If somebody else does something wrong, you wish somebody would nab them. So this is where Paul is now talking to specifically to Jews, because what Jews are, are, are holding on to is they believe that they are confident. They're confident. They're confident because they're Jews. They're confident because they have the law. And so what we see is Paul now trying to confuse or trying to break down the confidence of the Jews because he's one. And he knows what their loyalties are. He knows where their salvation lies. He knows where, what they hold on to as Jews. And so that's why he's now going to them and trying to build a case, first against all humanity, which he did in, in the first chapter. And if we're going to get to next week, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, the name of my sermon is No One's Left Out because he's built a case for everyone. But here in these verses 12 to 8, he is now specifically going to the Jew because, as I've mentioned before, the Jew is cheering on Paul when he says that they all deserve wrath. And of course, a Jew doesn't deserve wrath because he's a Jew. And he's got the law. And he's called a Jew and he's under the covenant. And so these poor, pitiful Gentile pagans, God's coming after them, but I'm a Jew. And Paul says, wait a minute, it depends on what you base your Jewish on. And that's what we need to do when we, as I've said before, about questions. And as I said in this book, there are over five or six dozen questions, 58, 60-some questions that Paul does, uh, does list for us and is good for us to understand why he does that, and especially here, because the more we talk with people, the more we're going to understand what questions they have. The more we witness to people, the more we talk with people about things in life and in faith, we understand what their comebacks are going to be. And that's why Paul is writing this out for us, because he has gone through this. He has gone on these missionary tours. He has spoken, right, when we read in the book of Acts, where does Paul go immediately? He goes to the synagogue because he doesn't need to put a gathering together. He's a trained expert on the law. They're welcoming him to come to the synagogue. So Paul takes the opportunity. He goes to these, he goes to these cities, and he goes straight to the synagogue. So what does he do? He opens up the Old Testament, but points them all to Christ. And, we, and we've read, if you've read the book of Acts, how welcome that news was 
how Paul had to run for his life and how he had to hide. And in, in Corinthians, we read how he's been stoned and shipwrecked and how all these things that have happened to him and how the Jews were looking as they wanted to kill Jesus, they wanted to kill Paul. And they wanted to kill everybody else who was a Christian. So Paul understands what's going on in the minds of Jews. It's like me talking to people who have been raised in a Roman Catholic church I have I know what are the what are the words I know what to talk about and I know what terms to ask for clarification when you say salvation when you say baptism what do you mean by that I did that when I was in in seminary and I I used to talk to people and make appointments with people at the church and other people and just say you know, what does it mean when, you, when, when the word comes up of who Jesus, who is Jesus? What is the Bible? What does it mean to be born again? What, what, are, what, are, what do these things mean to you? So people who are religious and who do go to church have some sense, even though it's very vague, they have some sense. And so what we're supposed to do is to kind of squeeze it out of them because we want to know what they're thinking. And that's what Paul has done and does here. He knows that he's squeezing his brothers and sisters in, in, in Judaism. He's squeezing them by these questions. He's squeezing them by telling them about the law and how he is saying that the law, you have it. But what is the law to you? And by you having it, what does that mean? And so we see that he goes... In verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew, and if you rely on the law and boast in God, and he goes on to this whole thing, if you believe this, then why are, why do you, what, what is the incongruency with your life? Do you do these things? Does having the law make a difference in your life other than sitting on the shelf collecting dust? We had a Bible in our house. We had several Bibles in our house that some of them were this thick and they were great, colorful things, but who opened them up? Nobody opened up a Bible in my house, rarely. But we were the most loyal people, church-going people in town. And, and, you know, we just never, it never was something that was a part of our home until my mother changed and all of a sudden she no longer found uh, a, a sense of uh, desire and passion for the external things of Roman Catholicism, but started leaning upon Jesus and started coming to me and saying, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? And I thought my mother had gone wacky. Ma, what are you talking about? Have I, what do you mean Jesus? I go to church with you. I mean, you know, we've been together. I go to, what are you talking about? And my mother started handing out Bibles, and my mother had this whole turnaround of her perspective, even though she was a faithful lover of, of the church, all of a sudden her focus started on the Bible and started on Jesus. And so I understand what that means to feel when somebody's questioning you, it, it, it becomes intimidating and it becomes personal. And Paul is doing that here and he says to them, uh, Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Does breaking the law make a difference to you? Does it really bother you? He's trying to ask them. 
Is that something that you think about? Or do you just go your life and you just make sure that you have all the trappings of being religious, but do you really care? Has, has it made an impression on your life? And then he says in verse, four, uh, in verse 24, For it is written, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. Ezekiel, verse, chapter 36, addresses this. He addresses this in verses 16 through 24. <clears throat> the title of it in my Bible, of that, at the, at the paragraph in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, It says, the Lord's concern for His holy name. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for, their, for the blood that had shed in the land for the idols which with they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they go out of his, of his land. They had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which, which the house of the Lord had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore say to the house of Israel, verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring, bring you into your own land." I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will put in within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put, you, put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." It is not new that the Jews had profaned God's name. The Gentiles didn't know that they were doing it. They just were, they just were living their life, living life according to the way they thought, according to their conscience as God had given them. So we see here that they were breaking the third commandment by dishonoring God's name. And so God had to do something about that. And what does he say? If you obey me... In fact, it's something that you can't do, so I'm going to cause you to obey me. I'm going to give you the ability and the will to obey me because I'm going to give you a new heart. 
Now, the Jews should have understood this, that it was coming, and that this is where the Lord is working in, in their life, and this is the direction that he wanted them to go. So then out of the blue, in verse 25, Paul brings up circumcision. Because why? Because he, know, he knows that when he starts squeezing them about the law, the next thing in their pocket is circumcision, right? Because the law makes them different, and above any sign and any identity marker that anybody else could bring them all in the nations, these people had circumcision because it, it was the mark of being a part of the covenant community. So they went, we have the law. Okay, the law is not good enough for you, Paul. Okay, I'm circumcised. I've got circumcision. Or, as you can say, I've been baptized. No difference here. We've got the Bible. We've got baptism. They've got the law. They have circumcision. What does that all mean? What does, does baptism mean anything to us? What does it mean when you ask people, you've been baptized? Well, what does that mean? So Paul, in verses 25 through 29, he goes to circumcision because circumcision is very, very important. It's an important sign in Genesis 17 where, Paul, uh, where uh, God tells uh, Abraham about that he was going to make them a great nation and that they were going to be circumcised as an identity. And a part of that identity was that they were going to obey. If you obey, therefore I put this sign upon you, therefore obey my rules and my laws and my statutes. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, I test, in chapter 5 verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Not piece of it, the whole law. So as you can see, Paul was challenging them on their understanding of the law, and now he, they throw at him this circumcision, and he says, wait a minute. Circumcision points to something. Are, is, does, does, do you mean that? Is that, what you, is that what you value? Because he says here, for circumcision is of, indeed of value. See, because all of a sudden they're starting to think in their head, what do you mean? There's something wrong with circumcision? He goes, it's indeed a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision is reversed, which is really amazing. It's reversed. It becomes uncircumcision. And as he says in... Uh, uh, Chapter 9 of Jeremiah, I'll read that to you. Chapter 9 of Jeremiah. He says this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. That's verse 25 of Jeremiah 9. Egypt, Judah, Edom, sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut their corners of their hair, or some ritual, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in their heart. And this is where Paul goes on and says this in verse 26. 
So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be circumcision? Meaning that you don't need to have circumcision to have your heart circumcised. It's important to have circumcision, right? Because look at chapter 4 of the book of Exodus. What happened? Moses fails to circumcise their son Gershom, and Zephora has to, when, when some, something happens to Moses, he becomes incapacitated, and Zephora knows that God is very angry at Moses for not, not sac- uh, circumcising Gershom, and so she does it. It's important, because circumcision was an identity. It's a mark. But he says you, he's, he's really messing up the minds of the Jews here because he says you can, still be, you can still be a person who keeps God's law and not have that mark of circumcision on you at all. Because the mark of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, again, a sign is pointing to. Why don't we turn to those slides? We have those slides? From the larger catechism. Can you see them? Am I in the way? Oh, you got them in your bulletins, hopefully. It says, in question 34, how was the covenant of grace, which means the plan of salvation, administered under the old covenant? Answer. The covenant of grace was administered under the old covenant by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other symbols and ordinances, all of which foreshadowed the Christ to come and were sufficient for that time to build up the chosen ones in faith and the promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. Now, to get the import of all that, we'll go to question 35. How in the, is the covenant of grace or the plan of salvation administered under the new covenant? Under the new covenant, when Christ was exhibited as the true substance of what had been previously foreshadowed in types and shadows, the same covenant of grace, the same covenant of grace, was and still is being administered in the preaching of the word, of the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and effectiveness to all nations. So, by these two questions, what do we see? We see that the promises, the sacrifices, the circumcision, the Passover, the symbols and ordinances were sacramental in nature. As he says, they were here like we have the supper. We have baptism. These are means of grace. Signs pointing to Christ. Sealing us in God's love and his covenant. And in the Old Testament, that's how these Old Testament saints were saved. They believed that God, not because they did the sacrifices, but because in the sacrifices, it pointed to the salvation that only Yahweh was going to be able to give to them. And we are reminded of that in, in Hebrews, right? I even said this on Sunday when, we did, when I prayed for the elements. I said, it said in Hebrews, blood of goats and bulls does not save anybody. But 
realizing that those elements don't save us either, or baptism doesn't save us either. So we can't point to baptism and to communion and the Lord's Supper as something that guarantees our place with God. It doesn't give us salvation. It guarantees us nothing. What does it do? It guarantees us the presence of Christ. It guarantees us that the Lord is being glorified and that us taking it, remember the institution, the words of institution, by eating and drinking, we proclaim something. And so by these Old Testament saints who were believers, who, had, of course, it all came to fruition, right? It all came to, to the end, when Jesus died on the cross and says, it is finished, it meant that for all the Old Testament saints. That's how important it was. That's the value. This is not, the Jews weren't getting that. That's what Paul wanted to press on them. It is a value if you are then driven by God to obey. And you and I can't obey the whole law, so who do we run to? We run to Christ because he has obeyed the whole law. That's where this argument that Paul is making and the discussion that he's ensuing in is because he wants them to be stripped clean of any kind of pretenses they believe. I mean, because when I remember, I mean, being raised Roman Catholic, I remember being at funerals, and I've said this too, I know, before, but that I never heard it before until I became a believer, until I heard the, read the Bible and heard about what this all means, what it means to be born again. But in the ritual of the last rite, I mean, of, the, of the, uh, the, the mass that they have for people who are there for the funeral service, in there, as they're sprinkling water, they say, you were born again in baptism. Now, isn't that a great question? What do you mean, born again in baptism? What does that mean? Does the Bible teach that you are born again in baptism? And the answer is, no, you are not. But I remember totally reveling in the fact that, you know, I checked off all the check marks, right? Confirmation, communion, altar boy, all these things. I was checking all the boxes. How could I be wrong? He'd be happy to have me in heaven. And this is where Paul is trying to peel off these things that were giving them assurance because he cared about them. We're going to go, you know, we get to chapter some year, chapter 9, 10, and 11, three chapters, Paul devotes complete time to the Jews and talks about them with a great affection. But here he's interrogating them. They're here he's questioning them. And some, they don't like it. As, as we know, because he is going to have, in chapter 3, objections. But finishing up there, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, in verse 28 of, of Romans, nor is circumcision outward or physical. Like baptism, it's, it's an outward sign of inward grace. It's what's going on inside of us that God has now baptized us, has given us his presence, has given us, we take the sign of the death of Christ upon us, or we put that upon the gospel sign upon our children. 
pointing to some day that they realize what that sign is doing upon them as the children who were eight days old and were circumcised who had no idea what that was all going on except that it hurt and they cried is that when they were told why they were circumcised and why they are part of a covenant community. And by baptism, we become covenant community. There's the, you know, the ch kids, they have roles, right? Children, the infant roles of the covenant kids, which is nice, but can be misunderstood. Because I remember being at a church when I was in Philadelphia, when I was in seminary, at a really strong Presbyterian church, well, they had an open mic, and this woman stood up, and she was praying for her grandmother, and she pleaded with Jesus, with Jesus, Jesus, she has the sign of baptism on her. You have to save her. Well, I don't know if anybody, I don't know if any of the elders ran up to her later and told her what she was saying that was not necessarily, but that was her heart, right? That's what she believed. She believed that she was a covenant child, and that meant that there had to be, God was going to come someday and save them because they had that mark on them. And the answer is, there's no guarantee. He's talking about the same thing. No guarantee for circumcision. No guarantee because you possess the law. No guarantee. He's trying to strip them of their confidence. And that's what he's doing here. And we can see, we can see that in the... Uh, other two questions here. What do the sacraments become effectual? How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? The sacraments become effectual means of salvation, not by any power in themselves or any virtue derived from the piety or intention of him by whom they are administered, but only by the working of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Christ by whom they were instituted. A sacrament, it says here, uh, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit the benefits of his mediation to those who are within the covenant of grace. And that meant even the Old Testament saints. To strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces, to increase their sense of duty to obedience, to testify to and give sweetness to their love. This is what Paul was appealing to. Where is the sweetness of your love if you possess the law? Do you, can you tell me about the love of God? Not about the love of God that protects you, but the love of God that you exhibit to him. And that you want to you do everything that you can within your ability, knowing that you and I don't have the all, will all the time or the ability to do everything that God wants us to do. We may sing, I love you more than anything, Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than anything else. And you and I can say that, but you know as soon as we look in the mirror and we see that God, we like to listen to that God a little bit more than Jesus. So God is very well aware of our inability to follow him. But that's why we don't have to worry about our salvation because Jesus is the one that secured it for us. And he says here, verse, to testify and to give sweetness to their love and communion uh, with one another and to distinguish them from those that are outside the covenant of grace. Yes, covenant children have a great blessing and a great privilege 
And that is being brought up in a family or with one parent that loves the Lord and understands what grace is and brings them to church and raises them up in the church. Those are the blessings that children who are raised with the sign of the covenant on them and, and our covenant kids have. But there's no guarantee. Baptism does not save anyone. It only points to the one who does. Question 163, what are the parts of a sacrament? There are two parts of a sacrament. One is the outward and perceivable sign used according to Christ's own instruction, and the other is the inward and spiritual grace signified by it. So, in, we go on now to the, uh, again, realizing what Paul's saying here about circumcision is a matter of the heart. We can, you can find that in Leviticus, and you can find that in Deuteronomy. None of, these, uh, none of these are just New Testament. These are Old Testament. Paul's bringing these up and saying, I'm just not writing this. This stuff is something you guys all should know. So, if you've talked to anybody, as I've said before, you can realize that they're either they're listening and they're quiz, inquisitive or their blood pressure's going up because they're starting to get a little annoyed with you by who is this guy who thinks he knows everything, who's pushing me to think that I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's not, I've had that happen to many people in my churches in the past as well. So, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, there are four objections. They object. Having the law and having the sign of, the, of, of circumcision are very important. But someone's going to say, first question, objection number one. What then, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And he says, oh, contraire, much in every way. There are many things. You have many privileges. You have many benefits by having circumcision and having the law. All of them are under the covenant of grace, all pointing to the mercy of God. That bloody mess of Leviticus, that sign of a covenant, circumcision, it's called cutting. That's what the word means, cutting. Circumcision means, I mean, covenant means it's cutting. So, you're cutting. What they're doing is, you know, Genesis 15. Remember the cutting of the animals? And God went through and says, if I, if, I, uh, if I should fail to keep my word to you and be faithful to you, may this happen to me. Well, it does. It happens to Jesus, right? He ends up being figuratively cut up and uh, sacrificed. And so we see there that... that um, in, in there is a sense, right, with all covenants are blessings and curses. The Jews wanted the blessings, but they didn't want to hear anything about the curses. People want to know the good news, Pastor. Tell me good news. Make me feel good when I come to church. Don't give me news about sin. Don't tell me about sin, because I don't want to know about that. Well, you don't know blessings until you know curses. And when you cut, meaning that it's a bloody painful mess, in a circumcision, and when you do sacrifices and cut and being bloody, 
it is important because it shows the cost of forgiveness. The very center of Leviticus chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. And that's the grace of God giving us a way out from our sin and our being covenant breakers. And so what he is saying here is that, Jew, you can be uncircumcised. By your disobedience, you become uncircumcised. Christian, you do not obey or care about the word of God or want to live a holy life. Realize that you've been unbaptized. And what goes along with those blessings of baptism? What goes along with the blessings of, of circumcision? The curses. So if you are cut by God and cut out of society, sanctified, cut outside, and then separated, right? A people for himself, his own possession. He cuts us away. The identity, right? That's what we were talking about in, uh, in the uh, confession here, the catechism. He takes us and separates us and makes us a people for himself. But what happens if you're uncircumcised or unbaptized? You are now no longer circumcised and no longer part of that community and recognized by God that you are not his possession. And that's what he's trying to tell them. Is that what you want God to see? Is that you how you want others to see? And so it goes both ways. This cutting, it, positive and negative. Good news, bad news. Blessings, curses. That's what's all involved when he's talking to these Jews. They know this. This is their everyday operation. They have the temple. They know what's going on. But it can become rote. It can become a matter of habit. We can go through the motions and not, have a, not even think about what we're doing. And I know sometimes we get in communion and we have those cups and we're trying to peel those things. And, so, and I'm just going, I'm, you just want the, the weight of what we're doing to make sure that we truly understand what is going on by signifying the eating of Christ's body, the partaking of him. And the shedding of his blood when we're drinking the juice, which is to signify the wine and the blood of Christ. And when we do baptism, it's nice and it's a beautiful occasion, but do we remember the vows that we took upon that baptism? And that's what Paul wants us to do. And that's what God wants us to remember. And this is what he wants the, the Jews to remember. And so we see these objections. He goes, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So I'm not going to read it now, but write down Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, and it says right in here, you know, what, what, what blessing you people have is that God has given you his revelation, that he's given you the oracles of God. You're just, that's a great blessing, a great privilege, and a great responsibility. Because with the blessings comes responsibility. And then in objection number two, he says this in verses three and four. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the goodness of God? Now people do say that, right? I mean, that's what he, these are things that he has heard. And he says, oh, God forbid, the King James Version says. Not in a thousand years, somebody would say. No way, Jose, some people would say. By no means, let God be true, though everyone a liar, because God is always true. God is always faithful. He has proven that 
over and over again. So that's why he quotes chapter 51 of the book of Psalms, because that's David's psalm when David asked God for forgiveness because of his transgressions. And this is where he says that, he, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He understands what it is to be judged, but he also understands what it is as a blessing and a privilege to be forgiven by God because of the sacrifice that he is making for him. In the blood, in the sacrifices, in the temple, but ultimately in the one that he knows that the word tells us that is supposed to come. The Son of Man in Daniel, in chapter 7. And then another objection, number 3. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He goes, I speak in a human way. So what is he saying? He's saying, so why are we being, why is the wrath of God coming upon us if we're making God look good? I mean, that's really, he says, if, 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 God is, if God is looking good because we're unrighteous and he's righteous, then, you know, as it says, we, we you know, keep on sinning so grace abounds, it says. And, and, there, and, and what does he say there? He goes, by no means. For then how could God judge the world if God is not faithful in everything, in all of his attributes? If God is not perfect, if God is not Anything that we've studied in the Bible, if he's, he has to be everything to be God. And if he's everything, then he's never faithless. And, as it says here, that he's never wrong when he judges. This is why he made that argument in the very beginning. God, has, that God is not impartial. I mean, God's not partial. He, doesn't, he shows impartiality. There's nobody that is special to him other than those who are in Christ. Because God can't love us any more than he loves us now because of being in Christ. And then he says, uh, um, verse in 7 and 8, doesn't have an answer. Really doesn't have an answer. But he says this, but what if God, if what through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, and why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now Paul says, and, why, and it says here, why not do evil that good may come, as some people are slanderously uh, charging us with saying. And it says here, their condemnation is just. And in one translation, because it kind of, this is actually, if you, if you do any study on this, these verses 3 through 8, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, everybody attests that these are difficult uh, verses to translate or different, uh, even to interpret. So, uh, but they know there's objections and there's answers, especially this one here. So Phillips translated, and I, I kind of like it, such an argument is quite properly condemned, meaning that that question doesn't deserve an answer. <laughs> I thought that was quite good. Because sometimes you go to people and you're saying, really? Right? Do you ever have a conversation where somebody comes up with something really stupid and you say, you know, no questions are bad questions, but that's stupid. You know, that's that, I mean, you're not even thinking about that. You're trying to trick me. Or you're just try, you're not really sincerely looking, and you're not sincerely uh, asking questions. You're not doing this. You're just looking, and you've, you, I'm sure you've been in those situations where somebody's got it. They're looking to nail you. They're not looking for truth. They're looking to put you down. So, as he says here, really? So what do we leave with this? I think, I think, uh, 
Matthew, tw- Matthew 7 is, uh, is a good one. What do we leave with this? Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Again, you realize Paul is interrogating. Paul is questioning. Paul is, is, is being, you know, he's being the bad cop here in a sense of, of just probing people and asking people. And, and that's what, again, we do. We have to ask people what they mean by what they say because they don't know what they mean. And so for us to interject saying, well, where did you get that from? Can you show me where you got that from? And if they're sincere, you never know who God is placing in your midst. You have no idea if God's going to make this person's heart pliable, that you may be the one that's going to be the means of grace, so that the instrument of grace in God's hands to be able to lead them to know Christ or to convict them of their sin. This is what Paul is trying to do. Paul's trying to bring the weight of their disobedience upon them. Because they're so quick to judge the Gentiles in the beginning, now he wants them, listen, it's turned upon you. These Gentiles may be right with God and in fact judge you someday. And so Paul is writing these things, this thing, to bring those who may be confused, those who don't know what they're talking about, or those who just, don't, just are so arrogant don't want to hear anything about this. He's just trying to bring this weight of God's Spirit upon them to make a decision. Their hearts may become harder, right? Like Pharaoh, their hearts may become harder. And you may see that solidify in your midst, and then you know that you stop. When you see a person's getting harder and harder, you just stop, and you just back away, and you just let, wait maybe another day, Lord. But when there's opportunities you just wait for the Holy Spirit to keep on opening and, and have people ask you questions who are sincere. But I think that's what Paul's doing, and I think that's a good example for us, right? I mean, a, a part of, very much a part of evangelism is apologetics, right? It's, it's the, the asking people for an answer for the hope that they have in them. Bible tells us that, and Peter, then why shouldn't we ask other people that as well? People are going to ask us, we, we want that then we should ask other people. I think people want to engage in conversations. If they don't, then you say, okay, Lord, not today. But I'm trying to encourage you to do that because it's fun. It's scary as all get out. It's intimidating. What does Jesus say in in Matthew? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then will I declare to them something that I never want to hear. I never knew you depart from me. If that is kind of read to somebody and talking to somebody and you say, well, this is what Jesus says. Is there a possibility that Jesus may look at you someday and say that depart from me because I don't know you? Is, there, is, is that a possibility that your faith may not be exactly what the Bible teaches? And again, you may not care what the Bible says, and then we leave from there, but you never know what the Holy Spirit's going to do with your ministry of his word. So again, I think this is pretty, pretty awesome um, and, and very weighty is, is Matthew seven twenty one through 23. I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And he's going to include circumcised and baptized people in that group if they don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done for them. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this writing uh, of this entire book, but also the book of Romans. We thank you for how it's written. We thank you, Lord, for it challenges us intellectually, but I pray it challenges us spiritually as well. I pray, Father, that we probe our hearts, that we ask questions, that we understand that we know Jesus. We, we go over and again and again when we get together each week. Why is, why is coming here so important? Why is being a part of this family so needed? Why does the Bible talk about that this way? Why is important to be baptized or have our children baptized or to take communion? Lord, I, I pray that we have an understanding, that we are assured of what we believe in so that we may be able to give the truth to those who you may bring into our way that you are desiring to either have their hearts hardened even more or to be an instrument of grace so that they may come to know you, maybe not at that moment, but somewhere down the road as you desire. So Lord, give us this ministry of, of desiring to know what's going on in people's hearts and minds. Give us time. Let us not be so hurried in our lives to stop and look people in the eye and to talk and to get to know them and to ask questions, even of the people that are in our own families and workplaces and uh, even people we don't necessarily like so much. So Lord, I pray that you again would, would be sovereign and that you would give us this great opportunity to be able to tell folks about you, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.